I'm Will. I work for City Bible Forum. We're a national mission organization, and we send missionaries out into the workforce to share the good news about Jesus. Have you ever had an argument over dinner? There's something special about arguing over dinner, isn't there? Because there's a knife within reach of every person at the table. And often there's a dead animal in the middle of the table splayed out reminding us all of our mortality. There's something very dangerous about arguing over dinner. But worse, it's a really sad thing because when you join together, that's your people. That's your people you're arguing with. And that's sad if that's, the, if that's who you're arguing with. I think that's really sad. And this is what's happening in first century Rome. In Romans 14, what we're reading about. I'll give you a brief explanation of the history. And a little disclaimer here. A lot of this history is debated, so I'm just going to give you my best interpretation, having read a bunch of takes on it. So Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome for a number of years because they were troublemakers, he said. Now, the Roman church was made up of a mix of Jews and Gentiles. And probably not all the Jews had to leave, but probably the Jewish leaders within the church had to go, had to get out of Rome until Claudius died. Suddenly, Christianity in Rome, the young church in Rome, is completely separated from its Jewish roots, such as the food laws. Now, when Claudius died, these Jewish Christians would have, many of them, gathered again from different parts of the empire and returned to Rome. But when they got there, they found that the, the churches were now completely Gentile churches, and they didn't particularly want to do Jewish things like have Jewish food traditions. They didn't want to change things to look like they used to be. They were perfectly happy with how things had progressed. And this all came to a head on Sunday as they got together to celebrate the Agape Meal. Now, many of you will have heard of the Agape Meal before. It's also called the Love Feast. And it's where all the Christians would get together in their house churches and they would share a meal together. And they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> so here's the dispute, and they're having this dispute over dinner. The kosher Christians, the Jewish Christians who are still obeying the food laws, they are coming back to a church that has now moved on and rejected those food laws. So when they get together and they have their agape meals, they're supposed to be uniting, but this is a time of division. They're there to bring glory to God, but they can't eat together. Now, the Gentiles don't even see this as a problem because as far as they're concerned, the, the Jewish party, the, the, the kosher Christians, are in the wrong and they just need to grow up and get over it. But Paul, whilst he affirms that the, the um, Gentile Christians are correct theologically, he doesn't end there. And the way that he heals this rift in the church is a beautiful template for how we can navigate our own divisions in the church, in the local church, in the wider church, in the global church. Now, that's a big challenge for you. So 
I've bought some props to help keep us on track. Um, I'm gonna take you through three dishes for our own agape meal. We're gonna have a plate of formerly disgusting vegetables. That's plate number one, formerly disgusting vegetables. We're gonna have a Whopper burger with a twist. And we're gonna have some very unequal servings of drumsticks. Okay, that's our three dishes that we're having tonight and that's gonna help us solve all of the problems plaguing global Christianity. Okay, so we'll go to our first, uh, our next slide rather. Our first dish is a plate of formerly disgusting vegetables. And that's gonna show us that is, oh sorry, go back one. And that's gonna show us that it is possible to do the wrong thing with the right motives. Doing the wrong thing, but doing it the right way. So if you take a look at verse six with me, whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. <coughs> so the weak, as Paul calls them, the weak, the ones who won't eat the, the meat that is being served, the non-kosher meat, they're wrong. There's no other way to put it. They're in the wrong. We see that in verse 14 because Paul says, I'm convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Now just to explain his point of view here a little bit, the reason he says that is because the food laws were established as a sign of the separateness between the Jews and the Gentiles. Much of the law of the Old Testament was a sign of the separateness of the Jews and the Gentiles. God had cho chosen the Jews and called them out to be his special people. But Jesus changed everything. You see, Jesus broke the dividing wall of hostility and now the kosher system, which was a sign of that hostility, is no longer needed. In Romans 3, Paul says, the righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. And in Ephesians chapter 2, he puts it like this. Jesus has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. <coughs> Excuse me. Thanks to Jesus, all humanity are welcomed into the family of God. All people can sit down at, table, at God's table and eat. So the weak, as we've said, are wrong, but they're acting out of a right impulse, as I'll show you. You see, their ancestors, the Jews' ancestors, were for a time under Greek occupation. And the great heroes during this time were the Maccabeans, who, rather than eat non-kosher food, suffered death. They were great heroes to the Jews. They had stood up for God's glory, refused to eat non-kosher food, and they'd been put to death as a result. They ate the food that they ate, and they refrained from food to bring glory to God. They were doing it with the right motives. In verse 6, we see Paul write, Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God, 
and whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. He's saying here that you can be doing the wrong thing, but be doing it to bring glory to God. And so we should be careful before we condemn someone for that. So let me get to my first set of props. go to the next slide. These, these are some formerly disgusting vegetables. Now, who here likes Brussels sprouts? Okay. Oh, that's, that's over half, I think. Who here would rather die than eat these? All right. A bunch of people. Okay. Maybe, okay, I won't put that so. Who dislikes these? Let's make that a little bit easier. Okay. Maybe a third people. <clears throat> that's not what? That's not strong enough. Okay. Who despises these with all their being? Okay. <clears throat> That's better. So here's the thing. You're wrong. You're objectively wrong. Sorry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what Paul does in, in verse 40 and say, no, 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 you're wrong. They're great. Because here's the thing. 30 years ago, Brussels sprouts tasted so horrible that I'm amazed that anyone persevered with them at all. But farmers and scientists did persevere with them. You see, the thing is, they've got something called glucosinolates in them, and that's what produces the bitter taste. And for 30 years, farmers, scientists have done everything they can to reduce those levels of glucosinolates down to almost nothing. You see, there was a war on bitterness, and we won the war. The dividing wall of hostility with Brussels sprouts has been brought down by these farmers and by these scientists. But there are plenty of people who don't realise that this war is over. The war is over and we've won. And as a result, if you put out a bowl of these at your Christmas dinner, there will be a revolt because people will act like you're trying to kill them and they will think, they will be shocked that you would dare to bring such horrible nonsense to this dinner party. Now, these guests, they are right to reject bitter, horrible foods. They're doing so with holy motives, so we can't judge them. They want to encourage enjoyment of the dinner and harmony and to be able to honour the chef and the host. They are right to reject Brussels sprouts 30 years ago. Because, as I said, the war is over, and if you fry them in bacon fat, they are unbeatable. So, they're wrong, but they're wrong for the right reasons. Out of love and respect and wanting harmony, they are, they are wrong, but for the right reasons. Likewise, in Rome, the, Jew, the Jewish party, the kosher party, didn't realise that the war was over. And they were acting out of right motives. They were trying to bring glory to God. They were trying to do the right thing. So Paul asks the strong to empathize with them and respect their right motives rather than condemn them. So to apply for you, how do you apply this? Well, are there Christians around you that you disagree with? Look to the believer that you're disagreeing with. Are they acting with right motives? What is the right impulse behind their behavior? There may be none in some instances, but assume there is. 
assume there is, slow down and look for this right impulse. Take Paul seriously here, and why not ask, what is the God-given existential cry behind their worldview? <coughs> Excuse me. Our second dish is a whopper with a twist, which will show us that it is possible to be right, but to behave in completely the wrong way. In verse 3, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. You see, what's going wrong here is that the strong, as Paul calls them, those with the strong faith, are bullying and coercing the weak, those with a weak faith, into eating food against their conscience. Paul says, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. He explains further a few verses on, to their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. This is actually such a crucial verse to understand. You are not saved by your theology. Even the Jewish Christians who were so wrong in something so crucial about Jesus' saving work were not at risk of losing their salvation over it because it's Jesus who's saving them, not their theology. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Cross-stitch that and put it in your living room. That's amazing. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. It's not you. It's not your works. It's not your theology. That was the first thing that somebody told me when I started going to Bible college was, remember, it's not your theology that saves you. Now, that's not to say that correct theology is unimportant. Look again to verse 14. Paul makes it very clear. He says that it is the strong party who are theologically correct in this instance. And while their theology is not a risk to their salvation, there are other risks to these Jewish Christians. In verse 13, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So what are these stumbling blocks? Verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. You see, there's a risk here because when people come together for this agape meal, this is their moment of unity, bringing glory to God. And if this crucial moment, they're denied fellowship because they can't bring themselves to eat the food at the table, there is a risk that they will instead leave the church and they'll go back to the synagogue where they'll be welcomed with open arms. And wouldn't that be sad for a believer who's come to understand imperfectly, understand the, the glory of Jesus Christ, to be sent back into the synagogue because he was not made to feel welcome at the agape love feast. Even worse, what if the believer is not yet ready for an understanding of uh, the, the change in the food laws? What if the believer thinks, well, now that I've broken this part of the law, I can break all these other parts of the law? Have you ever done that where you fail in a small way? And so you think, well, I'll just double down on this failure and just really commit to it. 
I, I have. I did the 40-hour famine as a teenager and I just thoughtlessly accepted a chip that someone gave me and then I thought, well, I guess I've wrecked it now. I'll have a burger, <laughs> which I did. The Gentiles should gently persuade the Jewish Christians, not lay down an ultimatum because they should be prioritising the unity of the church over insisting on having their way. This is the Impossible Burger. Okay, you may have heard of the Impossible Burger. This is something very special. It has 95% the protein and fat of a Whopper and 130% of the salt, and it tastes amazing. <coughs> Excuse me. It tastes like Wagyu beef. It is entirely made from plant products, but you can't tell the difference. It's some really, really clever science extracting the exact same protein structures from plants to make them taste exactly like beef. Now, if you're a vegetarian here tonight, I wouldn't blame you for being suspicious of this burger. I wouldn't blame you for not wanting to eat one, even if the only reason you're a vegetarian is because of your conscience. So what if I coerced you into eating this? What if I forced you into eating this or you can't join us as we celebrate God? That would be such a tragedy. In the same way, it's totally unfair of the strong to coerce the weak to eat food that they don't realize is clean for them. What if they went out and they were emboldened to commit all kinds of other sins? What if the vegetarian who ate this was then emboldened to go out and eat a pork chop? That would be really sad and that would be my fault. That would be the fault of the strong. Verse 21, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So let's apply this to your lives. Being right is different from doing it right. You shouldn't hold back the truth. Paul doesn't. In verse 14, he, he tells you who's in the right. But do it with extra love, extra patience and extra humility. Now, I have to confess, um, my natural way of arguing is to just heap scorn on people until they never want to speak to me again. And that's a really bad way to do it. And I'm tempted to do that, especially when I know I'm right. Even when it's with people I love, even when it's with people that I break bread with. But that has the opposite effect that I want. That doesn't convince anybody. That just sends people away. That just breaks relationships. It might even push people away from the faith. Do I want that on my conscience? Do you want that on your conscience? That's a terrible thing. So you can disagree with the point of view of another Christian brother or sister. And the church leadership might even make it really clear that this is correct or this is correct. But if the disagreement is about a disputable matter, be careful not to act in such a way that you would not be able to share a, a meal with them, that you would not be able to come together and share 
a love feast or whatever the modern equivalent might be. Our final dish is some very unequal servings of drumsticks, which will show us that our purpose is to bear fruit in the new kingdom. Have a look at verse 7. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. <coughs> you see, Paul is explaining that we don't live as these little islands of rights. We are a community. Often we think of this as just a modern Western problem, the Western individual. But it's happening in first century Rome here too. People insisting on their rights to the expense of the community. But the reason that Jesus died was to inaugurate the new kingdom, that you might build it up in righteousness, peace, and joy, not so that you can insist on being right and insist on exercising your rights. I'll give you the example of my dad. He rescued some one-legged chooks. You see, there was a breeder who had something go wrong with the incubation process, and a bunch of the chicks were born with only one functional leg. It's called spraddle leg. I don't know if anyone here has raised chicks before, but I understand it's reasonably common. Now, since this was a big egg farm, they didn't particularly care about trying to treat these chicks, so they were going to be euthanized. So Dad asked the breeder, will they still lay eggs? And he said, yeah, sure, they'll lay eggs. So dad took them off his hands. Now he had all of these happy little one-legged chooks. But here's the thing. Half of them were happy little one-legged roosters. And dad's neighbours did not appreciate the noise early in the morning. You see, these chicks had been saved to bear fruit, to lay eggs. They had not been saved to crow. So dad had the difficult decision of what to do with these little roosters. Should he keep the roosters who were crowing, causing a ruckus and getting him in trouble with his neighbours, or eat these chooks who would never live up to the purpose that they were saved for? And this is a bit like what the experience was of eating those roosters because you had one really big muscly leg and the other one that was really, really little but very tender. And that was the fate of the chooks. You see, they were saved to lay eggs. They were not saved to crow. It might have been their right to crow, but that's not why they were saved. And so that was a very sad end for these poor little one-legged roosters. So what can we learn to apply for ourselves here? Don't crow. Don't end up like these roosters. Bear fruit. You were saved to bear fruit. You weren't saved to be a Western individual, a little island of personal rights. You were saved to community, to the community of the church with responsibilities. Responsibilities like unity, love, 
mutual upbuilding. That's your purpose. And everything else, including winning arguments about politics, theology, vaccines, and everything else, is so much less important. You can still disagree over those things. And it might be important to disagree about those things from time to time. But, like Paul, do this to serve and love and build up your brothers and sisters, not to build yourselves up. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And in the next chapter of Romans, Paul writes, each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> As Christians, we're saved into community, and it's more important that we mirror Christ's humility and sacrifice rather than arguing and impatiently excluding brothers and sisters who have some faulty theology. Let's conclude by looking at Jesus and then applying this to some challenges for the church. First, I just want to take a real quick look at how Jesus treated those who were quite objectively in the wrong. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus calls a greedy and treasonous tax collector, a collaborator with the Romans, and then he goes on to have a meal with the other tax collectors. Now, it doesn't say former tax collectors. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus allows a woman who's euphemistically described as a sinful woman to anoint his feet with perfume. Such an honour for someone from such a scandalous background. The text doesn't say a formerly sinful woman. In John chapter 7, Jesus stands up for the woman caught in adultery, not a formerly adulterous woman. Now, in all of these cases, there is repentance as part of the story. But it's how Jesus treats them at the start of this journey that is so important. He welcomes them, even though they are so obviously in the wrong. He welcomes them and calls them into community with him, into eternal life with him. If this is how Jesus treats those who are traitors to Israel, making their money through immorality, living an adulterous life, how much more should we welcome those who love Jesus but are trying to express this in a wrong-headed way? So let's put this into practice. I'll give you a few scenarios, but this sort of thing requires a lot of wisdom and care because not all scenarios are alike. Sometimes a church is going to have to protect the, the, the flock from wolves. Paul's very clear on this, for example, in Acts 20, in his farewell to Ephesus. Let's start with disputes with other Christians here at Seoul or in other Presbyterian and Reformed churches. This might be on things like baptism, for example, or it might be about politics or culture war stuff. Maybe we can stop and slow down and ask, what is the God-given existential cry behind their worldview? How might they be trying to bring glory to God through this perspective? Why not start 
by seeking to understand rather than seeking to be understood. Even more importantly, ask yourself, am I pushing them away from the dinner table, the agape meal, the fellowship of believers? It's inappropriate to litigate these things over dinner. So in moments that are set aside to bring glory to God, let's do what Paul says, and he says, whatever you believe about these things, just between you and God. While we're together to celebrate God and worship him, just keep your mouth shut. What about disputes with Christians in other traditions, maybe more Pentecostal churches or more liberal churches? Sharing an agape meal with them might seem impossible, but isn't that sad if that's the case? Because we're not the host of the meal, they're not the host of the meal. At this eternal meal that the agape meal is pointing towards, this eternal fellowship, Jesus is the host of the dinner. How can we, for our part, as far as it depends on us, model a way of interacting with these Christians that welcomes them to sit down to dinner without dispute? How can we, as Paul says in verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarrelling over disputable matters? Ask yourself, is this the right time, the right forum, the right moment to argue this point? Perhaps if it's something that's a serious point of disagreement, you might like to just flag that you disagree, but also affirm that you want to stay in fellowship and not talk about it in this forum. And finally, be gracious to new believers and people checking out the faith. Remember that when you became a Christian, if you came, became a Christian as an, as an adult or as a, as a young person, you probably didn't come to faith with a fully formed theology. I know I certainly didn't. Let's pray together to close and ask God to guide us with wisdom through these complex matters. Lord, help us to accept each other. Help us to know the difference between disputable matters and matters that are so important that we can't just ignore them over dinner. Help us to be wise as we engage with each other within the church, within the local church, within the wider church and within the global church. God, help us to take this wisdom that you revealed to your servant Paul and apply it in a way that brings you more glory so that when we come together for the new creation, for the eternal banquet that you have planned for us, that there might not be awkwardness, that there might not be people that we've rejected along the way that we are now having to have dinner with, but we can learn right now in this point in history, how to interact in a way that is welcoming and loving. Help us to hold on to the things that are very, very important without turning everything into an opportunity for a fight. In your name, amen.